to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please open to Job chapter 31. We're just going to go through one chapter tonight because I think it's important for for us to kind of unpack the things that this chapter has in it as it relates to us. And, um, And it's always good to get good, solid, practical application of the scriptures, even though this book was written so many thousands of years ago. But uh, God's Word is living and powerful and applicable to all of our lives. Amen? So Job chapter 31. In this chapter, we're going to hear from Job as he kind of offers his final declaration of innocence, sort of a closing statement and an appeal to God. An appeal to God to, for God to answer him and answer this testimony that he's going to give tonight. This is really a testimony of his righteousness. And, and again, it's not in a, in a uh, boasting way. But uh, in this chapter, Job is going to offer 12 I have not statements. And I would challenge each of us to point by point as we go through these 12 I have not statements to see if that also applies to our lives. These statements are going to declare Job's righteousness before the Lord. So as we kind of go through and, and uh, study them together, I think it would be a good practical thing to do to ask ourselves, can we declare the same thing about each of these things that Job does that, that, uh, in our lives? Now, he isn't boasting here. Again, he's offering a defense and offering a defense for the accusations against him and also to the Lord for this sense that God, you know, is allowing these trials, which he is, in his life. Remember, everything is filtered through a loving father um, who has a plan and a purpose in everything, even the trials. And we know that. We know that we're not immune to these things, that we go through difficulties and sorrows and grief and, uh, and tribulation in our lives. And sometimes we wonder, right, why, what's going on and why we're going through this. But God has a purpose in all of that. So he's asking here for the Lord to vindicate him. And he's giving this defense uh, before God and before man. And I like to see some parallels in the scriptures. And I think there's a lot of topics in this chapter that parallel some of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's chap- Matthew chapters 5 and 7, 5 through 7. So we see some of the same topics addressed here as Job goes point by point, kind of giving his defense. And we see um, topics like lust, like relationships to our neighbors, uh, the dangers of greed, the dangers of idolatry. So as those chapters in Matthew, as Jesus was, you know, giving instruction, right, to his disciples and to us, we see Job kind of hitting some of those same points. So we'll jump in because uh, there's a lot to cover tonight. But in verses 1 through 4, we see this first 
um, offer here of defense that Job has not lusted. And it says in verses 1 through 4, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? So in verse 1 here, it says, Job has made a covenant with his eyes. You know, that's, a, that's kind of a biblical phrase. We don't really hear that out really outside of the scriptures. But what does that mean? That means a promise. A covenant is a promise. A promise not to do something. A promise not to look at something in, in ways that would be unpure. So Job was seeking to defend now his purity before God. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. I made a promise not to look upon what? Well, this is obviously about his own personal sexual purity, right? In terms of lust. He's defending his thought processes here to God. He's saying he worked diligently not to look upon a young woman in impure ways. You know, I think about, it kind of reminds me as I was reading through this, that, of that uh, old children's song, right? Be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? Be careful, little eyes, what you see, because the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Job says one reason why he would not look at a woman in sinful ways is because God sees all of his ways in verse 4, and he counts all of his steps. Now, that's a good reason. You know, sometimes we think that what we're doing, we're getting away with, right? That nobody sees, uh, but we forget sometimes that God sees. God sees all things. And Job understood that God sees everything that we do. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Wow. That's God. He knows all. He knows everything there is about us. Even though we may be thinking that we're hiding it. There's no way to hide anything from God. Especially our sin. If we're looking at things that way, um, you know, it'll give us a different perspective. Right? Wouldn't it? On life? Than to think that in, even in, in those times where we're alone, God knows. God knows all things. So if we're looking at things that we shouldn't be looking at, God knows. And Job sought to live his life accordingly. You know, Shakespeare, it's been attributed to Shakespeare that he said, the eyes are the window to the soul. And it sounds like, a, sounds like kind of a biblical phrase, right? And I know that many times Shakespeare has found, had found inspiration through the Bible, but if we, if we make biblical application of that, of that thought, it, it takes us right to Matthew chapter 6. And in verses 22 to 24, Jesus says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of life. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So... Mankind, we know, is a very visual creature. And what comes into our eyes can affect 
our attitudes can affect our, our thoughts and can affect our actions. And I think that's especially true in modern times. I mean, you know, back in, in uh, the time that Job was writing and, and even in uh, Jesus' time, there, w- there wasn't such a visual culture. But we're such a visual culture, right? We can't do anything without, without having that sense be a part of it. Um, so I think making a covenant with our eyes in this culture is completely applicable, very appropriate. I think it keeps us um, from looking upon things that would be an offense to God. So we move on to that to this next point that Job is going to put forth, and that's in verses 5 through 8, where, it's, where Job says, I have not lied or deceived. So he says, I have walked, if I have walked with falsehood, or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales, that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned away from the way, or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. So a lot of times in these points, Job says, if I did this, then God, you have every right to, to punish, to, uh, to mete out your judgment on me, if I have done this. But he's declaring here his innocence. His innocence in what? In his business dealings, right? He hasn't deceived people in order to cheat them out of their money. It says in Proverbs 11.1, 1, Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And Job uses this kind of this image of honest and dishonest scales. You know, we don't, although when we go to the deli counter, we want the scale to be honest. And actually there's, there's a government agency that oversees that, that it, I think it's weights and measures, that oversees that to make sure that those scales are honest. Same thing was thousands of years ago in the marketplace. There was sometimes you know, dishonest businessmen that might try to trick their customers out of their money, you know, saying that you were buying a pound of flour when it was only a half a pound. Well, the Lord wants us to have integrity in all aspects of our life. And Job was declaring that he was upright in his business practices. And so he asks God now to weigh him. You know, he kind of turns it around a little bit. He uses a metaphor that people could understand, right? But then he says, God, weigh me. I know your scales are honest. I know your scales are just. God, I, not I challenge you, but I, I ask you to weigh me, God. I'm honest in my business dealings. Are we willing to maybe take on that challenge, right? To be honest in all of, uh, of our business dealings. And it might be if we're the boss or if we're the owner of the company, right? We want to be honest in those things. But I think also, even if we're working for someone else, we want to be honest and trustworthy in all that we do. Not cheating, not cheating people and not cheating our boss out of, out of time or anything else. Right? Not trying to deceive. So, so definitely applicable to today. Uh, moving on, the next thing we look at here is that Job has not committed adultery. So in verses 9 through 12, 
It says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down over her, for that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment, for that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. So just as Job mentioned in the first verses about, about lusting with his eyes, right? This is now the idea of putting it into action. He expounds on this idea of not lusting after women in his mind by declaring that he's never acted upon it toward his neighbor's wife. And we know, right, that sinful actions begin with sinful thoughts. Job was saying... I'm innocent in both word, thought, and deed. James 1, verses 14 and 15 tells us, But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So you see that decline those steps of decline from our thoughts to our actions, right? And Job was saying, I never lusted after a woman in my, in my thought life, and I never acted upon that. You know, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? From thoughts to actions and then even to death. Sometimes, sometimes our sin will bring about physical death, but it always brings about a spiritual separation from God. And that's like a spiritual death for us. And you know, the enemy works double time to get our minds to consider evil things, right? It isn't much of a leap than to find ourselves in the midst of sin because we allow Satan to get in and to mess with our minds. So Job is saying here, I have not succumbed to the sin of adultery. I have not allowed that to happen. Verses 13 through 15 bring us this next point, and that is that Job has not failed to help his slaves. And we're going to kind of bring it into a 21st century um, application here. But in verse 13 through 15, it says, If I have despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up, when he punishes? How shall I answer him? Did, he not, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? That's, you know, all men are created equal, Job is basically saying here. This is integrity toward his employees. You know, a lot of times in the Bible when the Bible speaks of, of servanthood, you know, it's a little different than maybe what our a connotation of slavery is it many times is speaking more of household employees rather than slaves as we might define it um, you know in in our culture but the bible does speak a lot about how masters are to, to treat their servants paul speaks about how slaves were to act toward their masters with integrity working hard as to the Lord, right? And then in Ephesians 6, 9, he speaks to the masters, and he says, and you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, 
knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So even the, even the master of a household knows that there's someone higher than him. There's someone above him that he must answer to. It doesn't matter what our socioeconomic position is in society. We all have to answer to that ultimate master, God, right? And Job beautifully states here that um, the one who made me made them. You know, I need to treat people with respect. And even, you know, even those who are my, of my household help. We're all created equal and all in the image of God. Amen? So, boy, if society would just take some of these things to heart, right? Boy, what a different culture we'd live in. Verses 16 through 23 here. It, Job speaks about the fact that he has not failed to help the poor and the needy. It says, if I have kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fail or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it. But from my youth, I reared him as a father. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. If I had seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, And if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be torn from the socket. For destruction from God is a terror to me. And because of his magnificence, I cannot endure. Wow, so... Job is, is, I I love in some of these passages where Job just says, if I've done this, then God, you have every right to do this. You know, imagine if, you know, you know, Job was saying, if I have not lifted my hand to help my my fellow uh, human being in need, then God, you may as well cut my arm off because I'm not good to anybody. I'm of no useful purpose. If I have not lifted my hand, lifted my arms to help someone else that's in need. Job is teaching us here and expressing this as his defense. That compassion for the poor and needy isn't just the right thing to do in the eyes of man. Because we hear that and it's, those are good things to remember. But he also recognized that it's something God desires. It's something God desires. He recognized that God would judge him, and he had every right to, for his lack of empathy toward the less fortunate. And especially, I think, because Job has, was given so much. Remember, he was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived at that time, right? And he knew that everything he had was from God. And so he understood also that the the less fortunate, the poor and the needy, sometimes might need a a hand, might need some help. And he was in a position to do that. So why would he not help them? He realized that everything he had was from God. And he also realized that at any moment, God could take it away. And he he experienced it. And that's kind of where he's at. Right in this in this book, he knows that God took away everything in a moment's notice, and so 
he probably he has a different perspective about this. Although it does say in previous chapters that Job was always this way. He always helped the needy out. He always had empathy and compassion for his fellow man. In Job chapter 1, after you know, the calamity that, he, that was struck him personally, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, that line right there is not something that you would tack on to the end of the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. But Job sees things with the right perspective. In all of our circumstances, we need to understand and recognize God is sovereign over all of the affairs of our life. In chapter 29, remember when Job was, he was kind of mourning the fact that this, this ministry to the poor and needy, has, he, can't, he can't accomplish it anymore. He was in no position at this point to be able to do that. And he was kind of mourning the loss of that. How he had this ministry to the poor and the needy in his community. And he was considered a man of influence, right? He received respect from all the people. He helped the oppressed. He was kind and compassionate to the downtrodden. And he sought out those who were hurting. And he desired to help them. Those are great qualities for anybody. And then to understand that he's doing it as unto the Lord. That's that's an awesome thing. And I pray that most of us have that same heart. All of us have that same heart toward others and moving forward here in jo- in uh, verses 24 and 25 it speaks about the fact that job has not trusted in his wealth it says in verse 24 and 25 if i have made gold my hope or said to find gold you are my confidence if i have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much. So this is kind of the first half of, the, of this passage. I want to stop there, and then we'll combine it with the next few verses, and then we'll see, we'll see the end of this thought. But Job here is saying, listen, I'm, I know I'm blessed. I was blessed financially. I was, I, you know, he worked hard. He became wealthy. And um, yet he didn't put his hope in his riches. He didn't put his confidence in his riches. Again, he had that idea that he he held what he had with an open hand, right? Not clenching his fists and, and hanging on to those things that he had been given, but willing to say, here, Lord, you've given, and if you desire to take, I'm okay with that too. I'm not gonna put my hope in my riches. I think far too many people uh, put their trust in their money without realizing that, you know, it could disappear in one, with one bad investment, right? Maybe some of us have experienced that. And again, this isn't to say that riches themselves are, themselves are evil or that rich people are evil at all. But putting our trust in that is what might cause us to fall. 
putting our trust, putting our confidence in that. Remember, Jesus made this point. In, um, in a, couple of the, a couple of the Gospels, we have this account here. And we're going to look at Mark, a few verses here in Mark chapter 10, in verses 23 through 27, where it says, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. Now, this is what, he wasn't asking them a question. He was just he making, he was declaring something. How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? So why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus say that? And of course, his disciples were astonished at his words. And then it goes on and says, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches? You see, he changes it a little bit. He adds a word here that kind of helps us understand He says, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished. First they were astonished, now they're greatly astonished. Uh, I don't want to say that I would not be astonished at Jesus' words here. But sometimes the disciples have a thought in their mind from what, from what we read, and they don't listen to what Jesus said. Jesus explained it here. He says that those who trust in riches, but they were greatly astonished, and they said, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. What was Jesus saying here? I mean, why would it be difficult for, for someone with wealth? Why would wealth hinder anyone from being saved? And does it? And I think because of the disciples, we see the disciples' reaction here, we think, well, maybe wealth can hinder someone from being saved. But I think the disciples, and sometimes we, look at it the wrong way. You know, the... The quote in 1 Timothy that is often misquoted is that money is the root of all evil. But that's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. See, wealth itself doesn't hinder anyone from being saved. A wealthy person can get into heaven just as easily sometimes as as, as someone who's poor. But worshiping wealth... Worshipping wealth can hinder someone from getting into the kingdom. And this is where we come to the next few verses here, because it kind of goes together with 24 and 25. So in 26 through 28, Job speaks about him not turning to idolatry. And we're going to see the connect, make the connection here. He says, If I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment. For I would have denied God who is above. What is he talking about here? He's talking about idolatry. So what does that have to do with with making gold your hope? Or making gold your confidence, what it says in, in verses, verse 24. Well, it's like worshiping wealth. 
right? It's like idolatry. So we make the connection here. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. Where do you put your trust? Where do you put your hope? What are you worshiping? What are you bowing down to? It could be another person. It could be our career. It could be money. It could be anything else other than God. The Bible warns us that if we put our trust in anything other than God, we might tend to forget that God is the one who gave us all of this stuff. We might tend to forget. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant with which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God is the one. He's the source of all things. Verses 26 through 28 talk about worshiping false gods like the sun god or the moon god or the stars or the planets. And doing so, what? Would deny God who created all of these things. The whole universe. Job's saying here, he's never strayed from worshiping God. As much as he was blessed, he's never put his trust in that. For us, we, we could ask, has anything or anyone taken the place of God in our lives? Do we worship friends or family or, or even our children or anything, our career, or our wealth, more than God? I think it's uh, not a bad idea to, to kind of do a self-check on that sometimes. Because if that's the case, then we've been unfaithful to God. And that's why it's the sin of idolatry. But Job says, I have not succumbed to that. Verses 29 and 30 say, uh, speak about the fact that Job has not treated his enemies unfairly. You know, we saw how, how kind and compassionate and empathetic he had been to the poor and the needy and the downtrodden. How good he was to his, to his household servants, right? But now we're talking about how he treats his enemies. In verses 29 through 32, it says, If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me, or lifted, up, lifted myself up when evil found him, indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat? But no sojourner had to lodge in the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. So Job here is, is talking about a few different things. In the previous verses, we see he declares his care for the needy and the oppressed. Now he declares his care even for his enemies. And again, we look at maybe the Sermon on the Mount to get a little New Testament parallel here. When Jesus said, in, in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 44, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. So Jesus, uh, many times, he'll take some misapplication or misinterpretation 
that people may have had of the Old Testament law, and he'll say, this is what it really means. This is what it really means. And a lot of times, those laws were misapplied and, and misinterpreted by the religious leaders. You know, the law of Moses commanded that you shall love your neighbor, Leviticus 19.18. Yet some of the religious leaders added the opposite misapplication. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that wasn't what the Bible said. The Bible never makes that obligation upon us. Generally, the religious leaders at that time kind of looked at anyone who wasn't a Jew as their enemy. And they felt no moral obligation to love them or to help them. It's like saying, well, you're not like me, so I'm not obligated to love you or to show compassion for you. But instead, Jesus reminds us that all people are our neighbors, even those who we may consider our enemies. And to truly fulfill the law the way that Jesus explained it, we, got, we have to love, bless, do good for, and pray for our enemies, not just our friends. So Job here says, I haven't sinned by asking for a curse to come down on my enemy's soul. In other words, I haven't prayed an imprecatory prayer against my enemies that God would strike them down. But I, would, I love them, I bless them, I would do good for them, and I would pray for them. You know, Jesus understood that we might have enemies. As a matter of fact, he said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you, right? So we, sometimes we wind up in this world with someone who doesn't like us for some reason. I know that's a shock to a lot of you. But, and it's not, it's not a pleasant thing to know that someone doesn't like us. But for whatever reason, it happens. But what are we, how are we supposed to react That's the most important thing. How do we respond to that? Well, by loving them, by doing good for them, by praying for them. And certainly by praying for the Lord to draw them, right, into a relationship with him. And then they won't be our enemy anymore, right? They'll be a brother or a sister in Christ. So that's really how we're supposed to approach those things. It's a big challenge for us. It really is. It's not easily done. But we pray the Holy Spirit will help us through that. Verses 33 and 34, as we keep moving through, it says, Job has not hidden his sins. Job has not hidden his sins. It says, if I have covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door. And again, we see just the first part of this here. But this consistent argument of Job's friends against him was that he, Job, you appear to be righteous, but we know that deep down you're covering some kind of sin, that the suffering that you're going through would make, now it makes sense. It's the only way that it would make sense. If, Job, that you had some sin that you were covering up for, you were hiding for. But Job says, I'm not hiding my sin, my transgressions, as Adam did. Remember, in the account of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we can can read in verses 7 and 8, when after their sin, 
right? Then the, both, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they what? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Their guilt, their shame. They never had that before, before the fall. There was no need to cover because there was no sin to cover before. But as soon as it happened, they realized there's something wrong here. There's something wrong. And this relationship, this beautiful, intimate relationship that we once had with our father, there's something now that's hindering that relationship. And they covered themselves. They tried to cover themselves. And they tried to hide from God. And of course, they tried to blame God and each other for the, for the whole debacle. But Job's saying that unlike that, I, didn't, I never tried to hide my sin from God. I, I'm an open book. And he invited God to test him and to try him. And then in verse 34, this is an interesting thing because I think we can relate because we do the same thing sometimes. He says, because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door. So Job's saying here, if I had sin that I was covering up for, I would isolate myself. Don't we do that sometimes? Don't we hide not only from God, but don't we hide from others sometimes when we sin? Our guilty consciences maybe prevent us from fellowshipping with one another. That's not a good thing to isolate ourselves because of our sin. Remember, we, we can confess our sin daily to the Lord. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he will cleanse us daily from those things. Keep short accounts with God. And don't isolate yourself from the fellowship of other believers. Even confess to, to one another. Ask for prayer. That's important. Really, really important. In verses 35 through 37 here, we kind of take a departure. And then at the end of the chapter, we go back. So this, these short, this, this little passage here is kind of a departure. I, I think Job must have just realized, I need to cry out to God for, for a moment. And he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. So this is, this is very interesting. This is kind of a little brazen of Job, right? And he interrupts this defense argument to make one last plea for God to hear him and answer him. He says, he says God, I'm making one more plea. Hear me. It, sounds like, it seems like Job thought God was just tuning him out because his trial kept going on and on and on. He's calling for God to answer him. Well, God, if you heard me, how come you're not answering me? And then he calls for God to write down his, the charges against Job. He's comparing God to the prosecutor. God's not the prosecutor in this, 
in this case. God's the judge, right? Satan's the prosecutor. He's the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says, right? He's the one that's bringing the accusation. But Job's, you know, obviously he's he's declaring all of his righteousness and then he realizes, I'm still being oppressed here. I'm being persecuted. But he says, write it down, God, and I'll address each one and I'll prove to you my righteousness. Now, he is a little bit, he's being a little bit forward. He's being a little bit maybe arrogant toward God. But later in the book, he's going he's to kind of go back and, and repent and ask for forgiveness about this. But it's an interesting little interruption in this chapter. And there's only a couple verses left um, as he just continues to just one more time declare this last bit of righteousness that he wants uh, he wants God to know. And, he's, and in verses 38 through 40, as we close up, this is what he says, that he has not abused the land that God had given him. He has not abused the land. He says, if my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. So, we know that these the the Job ends his defense right here. This is the last area where Job expresses this this righteousness before the Lord that he's been a good steward over the land that God has blessed him with. And Job realized that everything he had was from God and the earth itself was a creation of God and it's to be used and enjoyed but not abused. And he spoke of the land as if it were a person, right? He says, the, the, if, it were, if he abused the land, then it would cry out to him. It would weep to him in pain, right? And I think the Bible teaches us to be good stewards over creation, over the earth. In Exodus 23, God gives Moses the law of the Sabbath, just practical things to you know to give the earth a rest give the give the land a rest every seventh year so that it could rejuvenate itself so that you wouldn't be depriving it of all of its nutrients so those things are not only practical but they're biblical and job said if i didn't care for the land that you've given me god then um then make my crops weeds and thistle. And so he was, he was saying, no, I've, I've cared for what you've given me, God. I've cared. You know, the, it's clear that the earth and everything in it was created by God and, and, and given to man to rule over it and subdue it, but also to, to uh, not to abuse it. Genesis one twenty eight says, then God blessed them and gave to them. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, of the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this is, you know, giving God, giving man kind of this, kind of this elevated place among all of the creatures that God command, that God brought into existence. But stewardship. It's an important word. Stewardship. It's caretaking. To take care of something that's not your own. Remember, this earth is God's and everything in it. So we're just stewards over it. 
So I, I think it's important for us to care for the environment, to care for nature, to care for the earth. But I think we also have to be balanced in that approach, that we don't go too far and we don't take it to the point of worshiping the earth, right? Not just caring for the earth. There's a difference between um, the political movement of environmentalism, right? And, and the biblical admonition to, to care and be good stewards over, over, over uh, the environment, to enjoy it. And to also have this perspective that this isn't permanent, as beautiful as it is, as much as God's given it to us to enjoy, this is not a permanent place. It was never intended to be. Remember, part of the, I, I guess, secular environmental movement is to try to preserve the earth and the planet forever, right? So they have this, this uh, thought process that they can do more and more and more to preserve the planet so it will always be in existence. We know that that's not part of God's plan. We would never do anything to, to purposely speed its demise, but it's all, it's all in God's timetable, right? We need to have that balance there. So we need to be good stewards. Everything we have has been, has been given to us by God, and as long as God has us here and has the earth here and decides, desires that it's going to continue to go, we need to be good stewards of that. So Job here ends his defense argument in this chapter. Next chapter, we're going to be introduced to a new character in the story. And he'll answer Job, but not directly and not in an accusatory way. He's going to kind of give us the nature and purpose of God. And I think that's going to be very interesting to go through those next several chapters, especially as it relates to suffering. But as I close, just may we take the characteristics of Job that he described of himself here in chapter 31, and may we apply them to our lives, you know? Maybe we be people of purity, right? Helping the needy, treating people fairly, even our enemies, good stewards over the earth, all of these things, but ultimately giving honor and glory to God. Amen? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org Thanks for listening and may God bless.